0: You are listening to Culture Machine Live, a podcast series dedicated to discussions of culture and theory. To find out more about the open access electronic journal Culture Machine, visit www.culturemachine.net. Joanna Drucker is the inaugural Breslau Professor of Bibliographical Studies in the Department of Information Studies at UCLA. She's internationally known for, amongst others, her work on graphic design, artist books, typography, digital humanities or speculative computing, digital aesthetics and visual knowledge representation. Drucker is a scholar, a writer, a book artist, a visual and cultural theorist and critic, and a poet. Her most recent scholarly works include the collaboratively written and openly available Digital Humanities 2012 with Jeffrey Snapp, Todd Pressner, Peter Lunenfeld and Anne Burdick, and their SpecLab, Digital Aesthetics and Speculative Computing from 2009, and Graphic Design History A Critical Guide from 2008. So, Joanna, um, if you Mm -hmm. look back at your career as both a researcher and a practitioner, in what way have you seen your research practice over the years change, or not, in your interaction with new media and digital tools? Have digital media brought your work as a scholar and practitioner closer together, for instance? Or do you perceive them as separate or as integrated in the first place? And finally, in what way do you think your own development in this respect is exemplary for changing research practices within the humanities as a whole? Okay, so let's
1: start with digital media and what they brought to my work and the work of po- people that I knew in the poetry community and artist book community, as well as in the scholarly world. And after all, I was in the poetry and artist book communities. Um, for quite a few years before I became part of the scholarly world. And I think the access to means of production was crucial for many of us. Mm-hmm. And in the 1970s, when I worked in a print shop, it was a shop that was run national—well, was funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities to provi- or National Endowment for the Arts to provide low-cost printing services for the literary community. And everybody who worked in the shop was a poet and or an artist or a writer of some kind. And part of that was because we needed to get access to printing equipment Mm -hmm. to do our own work. We were willing to put in the labor and learn the skills of the trade. And at that time it really was a trade. Um, And so what digital media brought when they introduced all of the various page making programs and layout programs and capacities for doing pre-press production was the opportunity to replace a lot of the traditional skills that were craft skills and industrial skills and professional skills with a suite of software Mm -hmm. programs. Now there are a lot of problems with that, but and, and, and the problems were that people weren't trained in those yeah. areas so they, ha- they were required to do things they really didn't understand um, a simple example would be um, understanding what kind of halftone screen to pick and how to do the orientation of halftone screens for the correct output of photographs for printing and um, it's a lot of mistakes and more patterns would show up but the larger issue I think is that digital media like photography, is a meta medium, and a meta medium allows all prior media to be re represented in on its terms, and so digital media have that particular capacity, and so we say in the scholarly world that what that means, and it's true in the art, <coughs> in the arts as well, is that um, what digital media are characterized by is the fungibility mm-hmm. of information in a digital form. So a digital file doesn't half doesn't depend, doesn't have a dependence on a relationship between any particular form of input and any particular form of output. When something's in a digital format, it doesn't matter if it came in as um, an audio file, a video file or an ASCII file, or you know a numeric file. you you can output it as music, you can output it as light, you can output it in any way. So the fungibility of digital media, the metamedia aspect of digital media are really characteristics of of the form. And from the scholarly perspective, (coughs) one of the things that that allows for is processing of remediated information As data Mm -hmm. through the tractability that it affords to analytic tools and again for better for worse and I think the for worse part is that people forget that they're using a remediation they think oh I'm I'm doing data mining on Dickens it's (laughs) like no you're not you're doing data mining on a digital re-representation of something that has picked up on you know it's, it's a processed file so um, so I think that um, the concept of metamedia um, is really crucial to the digital environment and, 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 it, and the way that we understand or misunderstand um, digital technology.
0: Okay, thank you. <coughs> um, so the second question. Um, in your recent work on diagrammatic writing and forms of visual and graphic knowledge representation, you argue for the use of an alternative epistemology of some kinds uh, in humanities knowledge production. Uh, here you favor aesthesis, a theory of partial, situated and subjective forms of knowledge production, over what you call metesis, a form of scholarly logic which claims towards objectivity, totalizing concepts of knowledge and an overarching systematic rationality. So why do you pose this, what seems as a radical cut between logic and poetics? and? Um, is this a kind of strategic move in your writing? Um, and in what sense are they not always already entangled in forms of humanities knowledge production? Right, <clears throat> well,
1: when we look at the history of epistemology and concepts of epistemology, the rational, the natural, you know, the, uh, the ideal. Um, the phenomenological, you know, there, 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 sort of moments in in the ways in which um, epistemological epistemes change and, and come into formation, and the authority of knowledge that is based on rationality is something that's held sway in the West for, well, I'll let you figure out how many <laughs> centuries, but, um, you know, and it and it allowed for the development of of natural sciences and of sure. natural observations and and certainly you know it. it Come from Aristotle and, and other sources, but the difficulty in the assertion of, of the universal authority of, of, of rationality is that it mistakes the process of knowing for the object known. Mm-hmm. And so there are phenomena in the world um, of that, there is no question. The relationship between those phenomena and systems of knowledge is a constructed one, and this goes back to, to Vico, right? It's like the, you know, what is known is 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 what is constructed, yeah. and so, you know, the constructivist theory of knowledge again it starts from Vico, comes forward through people like Piaget and and others into contemporary work, um, Ernst von Glasersfeld and um, Maturana and Varela and others, um, and um, ecological um, theories of vision and so forth. And you know, constructivist theories make good sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, they demonstrate that the relationship between capacities for knowing and that which is known are not stable. They change. We can learn more um, about certain things because our ability, our our brain actually changes in relationship mm-hmm. to um, forms of attention and experience. Um, so so these are relational um, conditions for knowledge, not absolute conditions for knowledge. So we're not hardwired to know one thing or another. Sure. Um, we are adaptive, um, are adaptive intelligences. So all of that said, um, if we take aesthetics, which is the field of philosophy that is concerned with perception and cognition, mm-hmm. and take it as the foundation for knowing rather than a kind of subset of other kinds of experience. It gives us ground for thinking about the ways in which um, the very capacity for knowing, the conditions for knowing are actually aesthetic. And by aesthetic, I mean embodied and sensual and situated and therefore partial historical and fragmentary. And so the claims that get made are very different. It's not a free-for-all. It's not a total relativity. It's not as though every individual invents the world, though every individual's experience of the world is distinct. Part of what that does also in terms of the history of my own formation as an intellectual is to come back to the kind of semiotic theories of subject. Production mm-hmm. that were so prevalent in the 1970s and 80s in film theory and social theory, that suggested that our life as individuals was always about um, position. We, we were we were spoken subjects of a set of social conditions, and that's insufficient as well. It doesn't account for taste. It doesn't account for um, you know the the individuation that um, is you know, so central to every aspect of our human relations. Mm -hmm. You know, why do you love one person and and not another? Why do you you fall in love with somebody and not another? So these are things that can't be accounted for through, um, you know, subject positionality. And so as becomes then, um, to me, a set of principles that have to do with um, the making of distinction. And the making of distinction, the grounds of differentiation, the the, the very ground on which differentiation is produced, um, and the idea that there is no a priori ground, that it you know, the, the producing of figuration is the making of ground in this mutually dependent way. Um, and here I'm just channeling, mm-hmm. you know, um, Charles Peirce and others. Um, that 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 approach to knowing um lets go of any of the kind of authoritative belief in an observer-independent world, and therefore it lets go of the idea that there's some, you know, absolutely authoritative system of knowledge that is the best representation mm-hmm. of that world. So, in terms of global politics and social, um, you know, sort of uh, the the stakes um, in knowledge production and control. Yeah. It seems crucial because relativism is not, you know, relativism. Relativism doesn't work if the other is always secondary, and it's only by destroying that that kind of hierarchy and saying that, in fact, the situatedness and cultural production yeah. of knowledge is what creates and produces authority yeah. um, that you really begin to, um, you know, get away from the, the hegemonic structures that have so hobbled um, our capacity to. Um, engage outside, of, yeah. from the West at least, out, uh, engage outside of those Western yeah. um, sort of paradigms. So to me there's a lot at stake for the individual, for the way that we think about knowledge, as well as for um, the cultural politics of global transformation.
0: Okay, thank you for explaining that. Um, so to get back to this idea of, of, of subject yeah. positions and a bit there. Um, as an extension of, of, of this, in your book, Lab you outline speculative computing um, as a practice and a concept that differs from what we commonly understand as digital humanities, um, which is, can be seen as a set of methodologies that uses digital tools to extend humanistic inquiry. Um, so with the concept of speculative computing, you kind of infer this, um, where you focus on the need for humanities tools in digital environments. Um, So this includes re-evaluation of the importance of aesthetics, subjectivity, and speculative work. Um, So could you outline how this focus again then on subjectivity, as you already did a bit, and subjective interpretation does not run the risk of enforcing forms of individuality and, for instance, kind of static authorship, for instance, if we think about publishing. Um, And secondly, could you explain how you can align Uh, what is commonly seen as kind of self-contained concept of subjectivity uh, with your embracement of uh, speculative work, uh, collaborations and uncertain outcomes as well as with your acknowledgement that knowledge forms such as for instance books um, are never stable or self-identical so in what way can we make subjectivity less individualistic and more speculative? Sure, well, you know, we know that
1: that the myth of individuality is a product of of a of a consumer culture. I mean, mm-hmm. it just has to do with a kind of, you know, uh, you know, a, a false sense that there's a kind of, um, you know, a, a discreteness to individuals that must be celebrated mm-hmm. through their capacity to make choices that decorate themselves. I yeah. mean, it's just like you know, it's ridiculous. It's a consumer notion of of self. Um, So, uh, you know, and I I always think about the fact that um, in genres like artist books, for instance, um, whenever people produce their their little journals, right, Mm they do the work that's, oh, my sketchbook or my travel thing or my this or my that, anything has kind of the my attached to it. They're so generic that you can't tell one from Mm -hmm. another. Okay? But if you give people a task, you give them a a, a work to do, as we used to do in teaching people drawing, and you say, okay, draw a chair. Sure. You know, draw a chair. We had this exercise we did draw a coated desk and a chair for every entering undergraduate. Well, nothing is more individual than the way each one of them draws the coat the desk mm. and the chair it's like they're revealing the edipal structure of their familial <laughs> upbringing and circumstances and it's mind boggling mm. right cuz the coat is them you know the the desk is is alternatively the father or the mother and you know and it's just you, you kind of can't believe what it shows. I mean, you yeah. always don't want to look. It's so personal. Whereas if they show you their personal stuff, it's like, you know, oh, my girlfriend. And I mean, again, you see it with, with student movies. Mm-hmm. Student films are just wonderful, right? They're always about, oh, should I commit suicide because my <laughs> girlfriend has rejected me? I mean, it's like, you know, they're, they're formulaic in the nth yeah. degree. So, um, you know, one of the, the arguments that I always make for, um, for art as a privileged category, and I'll come back to speculative computing in a moment, mm-hmm. but for art as a privileged category is it's one of the only domains in which we have the possibility of creating a space for experience itself. Yeah. So the biggest challenge we have is, 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 is to have the, have the experience of our lives. How do we, how do we have experience? Right. How are we not fully colonized by all of the belief systems that tell us how to have experience? Right. We are supposed to be brides at some point. Excuse me? We are supposed to be mothers. And as soon as you find yourself in one of those circumstances, you feel the kind of imprint of the culture sort of already performing through you, right? It's like you can't get away from it. So you're supposed to glow. You're supposed to be radiant. I mean, it's just it, right. Exactly. Like we can't even not laugh about it. But it, but there it is, right? Um, and so we enact these scenarios that have been, you know, sort of um, imprinted through us. So so to me, one of the biggest um, challenges and one of the the opportunities that art provides. And I say art in the sense of you know, aesthetic work, imaginative yeah. work, is um, to make the space in which we can have experience itself. And the same is true for knowledge. How do we, how you know, it, we are so ignorant. There's so much we don't know. There are so many aspects of the phenomenal world that we cannot even see, yeah. we cannot even access. I can't see heat in this room. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't see um, all of the kind of um, effects at a distance that emotional life is dependent on. Mm-hmm. Those are real. They're complexly real in the phenomenal world, and yet they're not tangible yeah. or, or tractable. So, um, so, so that's sort of the mission right? that drives me. Now, in speculative computing, um, there's a kind of perverseness there because here I was immersed in a world of digital humanities and wonderful smart people doing really interesting work. And um, one of my colleagues at Virginia, um, uh, Daniel Petty, used to say, we all come into, this, in, into these consultations about our digital projects as people who've been informed by relativism. You know, we're all post-structuralists and deconstructionists. And we all go out of here as little positivists Mm because we recognize that, you know, the demands of the digital are that you make explicit everything that was implicit. And you have to kind of give in to the requirements of of digital technology. So, you know, again, that's true only at the most um, simplistic and mechanistic level. And what we know is that you can use a logical system to produce illogical results you can use a uh, a discrete system to produce um, results that that also contain ambiguity mm-hmm. so it's not in the computation mm-hmm. that the um, exigency um, really resides it's more at the next level of um you know the the creation of of um, um, decisions about how to sort things, how to match things, and so forth. So with speculative computing, what we were trying to suggest was that there are methods that come out of the humanities as well as objects of study, mm-hmm. and that what we needed to do was think about how do you take those methods into a computational form? And um, so, you know, just like fu- you know, fuzzy browsing isn't about fuzziness. It's about the range of nuance mm-hmm. in the way in which a result can be... Um, displayed or accessed. And so what are, the, what are the methods of humanistic scholarship? One of them, again, is the capacity to, to tolerate ambiguity. We live with ambiguity, yeah. right? Contradiction and ambiguity, um, that things are both and at all times that's a fundamental feature of humanistic work, I mean, not all humanistic work, there's plenty of authoritarian types in the humanistic world, but it is the, you know, it is, it's is—it's fundamental to the humanities um, to believe that the entertaining of, of ambiguity and contradiction are central to interpretive acts. Yeah. We we do interpretation, um, that's what we do, so it's not empirical in its um, basis, it is fundamentally hermeneutic in its basis. So. Um, it 's subjective again in the sense that we 're just talking about before, mm-hmm. which is you know experience is located it 's situated yeah. it 's historical it 's partial um, ha, you know it 's like do you learn something differently on the day when it 's cold in the room versus hot in the room mm-hmm. sure thing, right If all you can think about is you know some irritation you can 't focus that's you know that's that 's the reality so again, it was to um, to insist that the humanities have an authority. In the world, because of their methods, not just because of their traditions, okay. and that as we argue for the validity of the humanities, that we do it not simply on the basis that history is useful to us, that the great works have something to say, that the ungreat works also have something to say. You know, th- that these are the the arguments for the humanities. Instead, I come back to the humanities are important because the instrumentalization of knowledge within administered and bureaucratic conditions of culture depends upon a set of values that pretends that decisions can be made in an observer-independent way, Mm -hmm. and they can't. Mm All decisions in cultural policy decisions are made on the basis of observer-dependent conditions. So what's at stake is recognizing that and taking it into account. In putting value um, on, the, on in, 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 in figuring out what are the values on which decisions are made. So for me, there's so much at stake here because it isn't just about, oh, I love poetry, you know, which whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about why the humanities matter to the larger questions of decision making about the nature of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the empty space of a landscape is not empty to an aboriginal perceiving mind yeah. and so decisions about what gets done to that land depend very much on you know the recognition of difference yeah. and again this is not my argument and plenty of people make this argument but that's a humanities issue yeah. right and that's where the humanities i think need to assert their authority yeah. so speculative computing was was bound up with some of those issues yeah. and and the investigations that we did led me to to that understanding. So,
0: okay, thank you. So, uh, final question. Um, In a recent issue of Digital Humanities Quarterly, you focus on the concept of performative materiality. Um, To which you argue that media and or media systems should be understood not only by how they are uh, or by how they are structured, but also by what they do. Um, so here you see materiality not as literal or having essential qualities, but as contingent, uh, where meaning is attracted amongst others by a materiality's use in a dynamic exchange between, as you state, and I quote, the object's characteristics and an interpretive process, end of quote. So in what sense do you then maybe underestimate the dynamics, the performativity, and the agency of matter and material itself here? if the performativity is enacted only if you apply these kind of really and scholarly uses and interpretations?
1: Sure, yeah, no, I mean, um, I, I wouldn't wanna suggest that there's not an agency to matter mm-hmm. and there certainly is, and there are inherent qualities, characteristics and properties, um, but they, again, are enlivened and activated um, in a relation. So it's, it just has to do with codependence. That you know, no matter what the properties of matter might be, um, uh, you know their the, the 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 way that they produce meaning or value is always in a codependent relationship. Yeah. So um, you know, again, you know what's what's cold um, is relative, right? So is coldness, is thermal condition um, an inherent property of matter? Yes, but is the meaning that it produces relative? Yes, it's codependent upon the circumstances. So that's all, so no, I'm a great believer in the inherent properties of of matter. And actually in the last session we were just having an argument about the the work of of Hans Gumbrich in this regard because um, Gumbrich wants to argue that there's a, or that there, there are capacities to matter that are outside of meaning mm-hmm. um, and that there's a kind of epiphanic, you know, moment of perception that can't be contained within meaning producing systems. And I think that's ridiculous, I mean, it's totally, that, that is to suggest that there, that's to confuse linguistic meaning production with other forms yeah. of cognitive meaning production. Our bodies are very, very smart yeah. and the things that we know through touch Um, are, are meaningful in the cognitive sense of really um, establishing categories of differentiation according to which we make decisions, organize the world, understand our, our conditions of being ourselves and our perceptual, you know, sort of apparatus. So um, it's not meaning that uh, matter uh, can't be contained by, it might be language. Right, but meaning and language are not the same, mm-hmm. and I think that that confusion is something that yeah, needs yeah. also to be done away with. So, um, so I would expand um, our understanding of meaning into a fuller, uh, multi-dimensional um, understanding of cognition. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So, no, I, b- I believe absolutely in the inherent properties of matter. How can we not? They're all around us, right? You know, like try eating a glass sandwich, you'll know <laughs> immediately. <laughs> so that's real, right? Um, so, yeah, um, I guess that's all I would say. And there's all this really wonderful wor- new work on new mm-hmm. materialisms yeah. that's really smart and interesting. And, you know, I've been really, um, you know, I'm a big fan of Karen Barad's work on meeting the universe halfway. And, um, you know, the, the, the question of agency um, and how it works independently of sentience is is an open question, yeah. I think, and the extent to which we confuse behaviors for intention um, extends to all the ways we interpret um, the phenomena of the world as well, and um, so I think there, there's a lot for us to, to learn still about um, what this is, the distinctions are that we make uh, among these different categories of awareness and self-awareness. Um, but also our understanding of the material world, and um, you know, it's it, our registration of its capacity yeah. to, you know, feel or know or act yeah, um, yeah. on us. So I think there's lots ahead, but there's really
0: interesting people thinking about that stuff. <laughs> so. okay. You are listening to Culture Machine Live, a podcast series dedicated to discussions of culture and theory. To find out more about the open access electronic journal Culture Machine, visit www.culturemachine.net.